What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods coming at y'all with another episode in our SEC in 30 Days theme. We are joined by Princeton uh, Daily Clarion Sports Editor and Editor for A Sea of Blue, which is the Kentucky site for SB Nation, some of the best sites out there, man. Make sure to go check them out. Aaron Gershon is joining us today, and I just want to say I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So, man, we got to start with the 2020 season, COVID season, so kind of a throwaway season for almost everyone, unless you're Alabama. I mean, the Wildcats, five and six. They get a big bowl win, though, NC State in the Gator Bowl, but half the losses, which is life in the SEC, came to teams that were in the top ten in the country. Um, Did this season for you, though, just when you think back to preseason, did this season meet, exceed, or fall short of your preseason expectations? Well, I mean, as soon as you find out it's going to be an SEC-only schedule, I think it kind of meets them. But before, uh, when you had, you know, your four non-conference games, and for Kentucky, really, probably four wins. I don't think they're going to lose to Louisville. Uh, anytime soon, to be honest with you. And then you had three cupcake games, essentially. Um, that, it, that changed things. I think we were all looking at eight and four at worst uh, if they played the normal schedule. But obviously, like you said, the SEC is an unforgiving league. You get Alabama thrown onto your schedule as the, uh, you know, they added on the two games and Ole Miss was a game. I, a lot. I think a, a couple of the, there were some, some letdowns. I'd say, you know, was it meet expectations from a record-wise? Probably, but leaning towards, you know, having some disappointment. I mean, Missouri is a team that Kentucky had beat five years in a row, and they simply didn't show up when they went to Columbia last year. Um, that that was, a, that was a real stunner. And then you had Ole Miss, which you really the only game the offense clicked on all cylinders, but the defense uh, didn't show up to that one, and you lose that one at home and just a – and gut-wrenching fashion with the missed extra point in overtime. So I think you look back and those two games haunt you, but otherwise it's about what you expected. I mean, look, you were also dealing with a lot of, you know, they had their only COVID issues came when they were going to Florida and Alabama, and they probably weren't going to win either of those games, uh, but the scores ended up being a lot uglier because of that. So like you said, a little bit of a throwaway season, um, but at the same time, it's not something anyone here wants anymore. The, the expectation at Kentucky now is to be contending for the SEC East, and last year was a huge letdown in that respect. Right, and I mean, you know, with with COVID, no spring practices, you can't really fault anything, you know, any team for doing what they did. But one of the breakout players for me last year that just got drafted, Jamon Davis, first round pick for the Washington Football Team. For you, I always like to highlight these type of players that might not – because he didn't get a lot of shine during the season. There's a lot of average fans that might have never even heard his name. But for you, what made him such a successful player at Kentucky, and what are your expectations for him at the next level? Yeah, he was super impressive. Look, he played – he kind of started to break out a little bit toward the end of his sophomore year of 2019 when uh, they had some issues at middle linebacker with Cash Daniel injured. 
Um, but I mean, the big thing with him is he, he's <laughs> speed kills in any level of football. And for a middle linebacker, he's as fast as they come. He's as athletic as they come. And that tells you not only did he make 102 total tackles, but he had three picks and took 185 yards to the house. So he, he's a freak athlete. I think that's the one thing that we all noticed. He's also just a super quiet, humble guy. He leads by example. And he definitely, the, Playing in the SEC was not too big for him, and he didn't make you know he didn't want his name to be necessarily the guy that everyone's talking about. He just wanted to go out there and do his thing, and I think that's what was most impressive about him. So I'm a Giants fan, so I can't root for him uh, <laughs> that much. At least I'll root for his individual success. Uh, but I, I think Washington's got a hell of a player, and Ron Rivera is one of the best coaches in the league, and he's only going to take guys uh, who one fit from a culture standpoint, and two can really ball out. And I just think he lands it in a perfect spot in the middle of that defense. And um, and that's kind of just the way Kentucky's men. They produce these guys that may not – It's I mean, you think Kentucky, you think basketball. So they're the guys you don't necessarily, you know, think about all too much. And they wind up panning out. And uh, I, I think Jamin will be great at the next level. I, I really do. But um, you never know. Right. Yeah, he was one of my, like, sleepers in the draft. I mean, I, watching going back and watching his tape, which – now, I didn't see too many Kentucky games this year, but I mean, going back and just watching him, he's, like you said, an elite athlete. But I want to move to the most important position on the field, quarterback. Terry Wilson was the guy for the Wildcats. Now he's transferred out of Lexington. That leaves Joey Gatewood, Bo Allen as the favorites. But then you also add in you know, the transfer from Penn State, uh, Will Levis. He can sneak in during fall practices. What do each of these guys bring to the table, and who is your favorite right now to be QB1 for the Wildcats when they take that first snap? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think Bo Allen is a guy who's already a fan favorite, even though he hasn't really played, because uh, he's a Lexington kid. So he's a high, you know, high four-star recruit from Lexington. His dad played quarterback for, the, for Kentucky back in, I think, either the 80s or 90s. So he's a guy a lot of the fans have loved from day one, even though he's thrown like three passes. Uh, Gatewood is obviously um, the Auburn transfer, who was a top 50 high school recruit. Uh, got one chance last year when uh, Wilson was hurt against Georgia, and it's hard to go in and make your first SEC start against Georgia. So he didn't play great, but he showed a couple flashes. But I think Will Levis is the guy that we're all expecting to start because he's a guy that Liam Cohen, the new offense coordinator, has handpicked. I mean, he's the only quarterback that was brought in since Cohen uh, took over as offense coordinator uh, after the Rams season ended in January. So he's a guy that Cohen went out and recruited himself and got from Penn State. And he's the guy for – we obviously don't haven't seen anything of him yet. We've seen the other two a tiny bit. Um, but we all assume uh, all the talk is that he's been prepared, uh, been pretty much preparing to be the starter. The one thing uh, that – you know, Allen and Gate would have a leg up on as they were here for spring and Levis was finishing his degree at Penn State. So he was not here for spring practice. But I mean, he's been learning the playbook virtually, which is a common thing nowadays. Um, and I, I think it would be unless someone outplays him in camp uh, once we get there in July or injuries happen, I think the expectation among most people is that Levis will start. Uh, my question is, uh, there's a lot of questions that come with that. The first being Joey Gatewood's a high-profile guy. If he loses the job, does he follow the trend of so many others, which he's already done once in his career and just said, screw it, I'm out of here, I'm transferring. 
Uh, we'll see. But I think Allen's a guy that I think Allen's a guy who's he's only going to be a he'll be a redshirt freshman. Everyone obviously get that year of eligibility last year, so I think he's expecting to. He wasn't expecting to start this year anyway. I don't think so. He's probably a guy who will be second or third on the depth chart, but. I think it's at the end of the day, it probably goes between Levis and Gatewood, and Levis being the guy that Liam Cohen handpicked probably is a leg up. Right. So, I mean, just a follow up here. I mean, I know he was handpicked. Do you think Levis fits the new scheme the best out of the three potential candidates? You know, I, honestly, I haven't, we don't know much about the scheme yet because there's no spring. Right. And we obviously, with COVID, there hasn't been any access to seeing them, but. I do, I do from a standpoint of I think there, it's going to be a far more balanced offense. Obviously, the last couple of years, uh, it's been ground and pound. And you know what? That's been their strength. Their offensive line, even this year, should be one of the best in the SEC again. Uh, and they have great running backs every year. Chris Rodriguez is probably the best running back in the SEC heading into the year. So with that said, though, they, they're going to want to air it out and also run with the quarterback. And I think Gatewood's a good mobile quarterback, but his arm is totally unproven. Levis is known for having a cannon, and he can move. So I think that from that standpoint, for what Kentucky's trying to accomplish, which is becoming a balanced offense, I absolutely think he does fit the best, yes. Well, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see it. I I mean, as an Auburn guy uh, myself, I mean, I, I saw Gatewood. I mean, he never really got a chance. Like you said, everything's unproven. It's all high school tape. It's all measurables. That's that's what Joey Gatewood is at this point. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. But it all starts with the head guy. Stoops has been the head guy at the program since 2013, ninth season. He went from two and ten to a top 10 team in 2018 with an SEC title game shot late against Georgia in at Kroger Field. How has Stoops had so much success in a place like Lexington? And do you think he can be the guy to, to help the Wildcats break through into an SEC title run? Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much – he's really – Obviously, the next step, and it's been they've been stuck on is winning the SEC East. But like you said, I mean, he came in the first year; he was two and ten, inheriting just a just a bad roster. Joker Phillips, uh, obviously, the guy in between him and Rich Brooks, who had a ton of success, really blew things up, and the program was <clears throat> in shambles. But you look at how quickly Stoops really turned it around. I mean, obviously, they've been able to afford to play the long. I, well, not necessarily afford, but they've been patient unlike all these other programs where it's if you don't turn it around in two or three years, you're gone. And they've been patient with Stoops. They accepted, you know, getting to five wins uh, in years two and three, which, you know, is a three-win improvement and winning some league games, which they didn't do uh, for that two-year span. And then, you know, slowly since then, they've been in a, at least been in a bowl game every year, and they've won one uh, the last three. So I think that the next step is obviously an SEC's title, but the way they're recruiting, I think next year, right now, Last I checked, they were 12th, their classes ranked. Um, it's a really good class, and every year uh, these classes are now finishing in the top 25 or right outside of it, which is something that wasn't happening under anyone else here. So I, I definitely think he's the guy to do it if anyone can do it. Um, obviously, every year we have to deal with the rumors of him going somewhere else, but he really um, has – he doesn't seem like a guy – who's leaving until he finishes what he wants to do here, which is at least uh, win an SEC East title. And obviously that's why they put in so much money. It's not only him every year to keep him, but Vince Mara, the recruiting coordinator, you know, getting a million dollars to keep him away 
for Michigan State uh, last year when um, his good friend Mel Tucker was trying to make him offensive. I don't know exactly. I know definitely recruiting coordinator. Might have also been the offense coordinator if it weren't for Kentucky going in and spending a lot of money. So they're putting money into keeping those guys and making sure that they stay and finish what they started. Right, yeah, I mean, he's he's probably one of my favorite coaches, just like as an outsider. That's like you always have to root for, for Stoops in this program. I remember in 2018, I was like the staunchest Kentucky guy. I was like, I hope they win it all. I hope they make a run and win the natty. I was rooting for you guys. But you mentioned the recruiting trail. That's where it all starts. That's why the best teams win the championship year in and year out. A top 35 class this cycle Headlined by two top 150 recruits and Jaeger Burton and Trevin Wallace. Yeah. Um, as an Auburn guy, I really wanted Trevin. I'm not going to lie. That kind of broke my heart when uh, he went to Kentucky. But what were some of the biggest positional needs for the Wildcats this cycle? And who were some instant impact guys that you see in this class that can make an impact the first snap this fall? Yeah, I think I think one was definitely the inside linebacker spot. We talked talked about Jamin uh, Davis. Uh, obviously, you know it wasn't even a given he was going to the NFL after the year. He's a junior, and he, like you said earlier, uh, he broke onto the scene. So he wasn't a guy they were really expecting to lose um, after the 2020 season, but they did, and they definitely needed to sure up that inside linebacker position, which is like you mentioned, made Trevin Wallace a huge deal to get a linebacker like him in. So I think that was one spot. I definitely think building – obviously the offensive line is their biggest strength, but to keep building depth there, you know, this will be the last year for Darren Kennard, who's probably going to be a first-round pick in next year's NFL draft. Uh, this is going to be the last year for Luke Fortner, who decided to come back for his sixth year, which was a huge surprise and get for Kentucky, pretty much a recruiting win uh, without recruiting. Um, so – and then obviously you lose Drake Jackson, the All-SEC center last year. And you've lost Landon Young last year. So building offensive line depth. So uh, obviously Jagger Burton's a Lexington kid too. So keeping him, you know, at home was humongous. Uh, I also like a lot of the guys they got in the 2020 class uh, to fill that need. But really, you got to look at what they did in the transfer market. Obviously, we talked about Levis, and he's probably going to be the starting quarterback if you'd ask me. But just what a week ago, they were able to coach Kez Jones from Ole Miss. Uh, they're, I believe, leading tackler or one of last year. Um, that's you got to give credit to John Summerall, the inside linebackers coach who was at Ole Miss just a couple of years ago. Uh, he's an amazing recruiter, and he's brought guys in from Georgia and Mississippi at such a high rate. Um, so to get Jones, I, I mean, he's going to be an instant plug-and-play starter uh, at middle linebacker. And that was the biggest need, and they really filled it. And the third would be receiver. I mean, that's, again, even with Wondell Robinson coming in off the transfer market and another one of the transfers there, that was the biggest weakness that kept them from winning more games last year was their, you know, Terry Wilson's numbers may not look good. I can't tell you how many drops or how many missed routes there were uh, from poor receiver play. So they were able to get to Kel Crowdis, uh, Christian Lewis, Chauncey Magwood, some underrated uh, wide receivers from those, you know, both the Kel Crowdis, a Lexington kid. And then you got uh, Magwood and, um, Lewis, I think, out of Alabama and Georgia, respectively. So they did it. They really did a good job filling positions of need. Uh, just because not all of them had the five star ratings doesn't mean that, that. What's one thing we've learned at Kentucky is stars mean nothing. I mean, Josh Allen, two star recruit, Calvin Taylor, who led the SEC in sacks two years ago, or was up there, uh, two star recruit. So they're getting the threes, the high threes, and the low fours has worked well, even lower that for them. So I, I just think they did a good job hitting what they needed. 
Right. And I'm so excited to see Wandell Robinson in this in this offense. I mean, that kid could be a Wildcat quarterback, a running back, a wide receiver, a kick returner, a punt returner, a slot guy. I mean, he can play every position on the offense and special teams. So, I mean, that was a huge pickup. But you know, there's there's always players that break out. We we mentioned Davis last year. You mentioned the O-linemen that keep coming out of Kentucky. You can – you could you could possibly mention even Will Levis this year. Who else do you have your eye on on this roster right now as we record in June that you think could possibly have their breakout seasons when we hit the field this fall? Yeah, I think you got to look in the secondaries. Uh, the secondary has been a two years ago, 2018, They had Mike Edwards, Lonnie Johnson, Derek Beatty, and Darius West all in the same same backfield, defensive backfield. And all four of those guys either were drafted, uh, Edwards and Lonnie, in the second and third rounds, or got uh, camp invites. So that was their biggest strength. And then in 2019, the expectation was they were going to have a horrible secondary, just given the fact that they were extremely young. Instead, they had the second. They were the only team outside of Ohio State, who obviously was a playoff team that year, uh, that didn't allow 10 touchdown catches. So that was a huge surprise. And then this year, they had another nice year in the secondary, but now. Uh, Kelvin Joseph, great on the field, not off the field, um, is gone. Uh, and Brendan Eccles, one of the most underrated corners in the SEC, in my opinion, in the last couple of years, is gone as well, both draft picks. So I think you got to look there because that seems to be a spot that they always succeed in. I think the two guys that are my breakout candidates on this one is one that's kind of already broken out but is underrated, kind of like Jamin Davis was, but not to the extent as Yusuf Corker. He's a rising uh, senior at the safety position, 77 total tackles. Last year, he also, I believe, led the team in tackles the year before. Um, he's, like Davis, extremely fast. Um, he was able to get two picks last year, uh, defend a couple passes, but he's really good in the run-stopping game, and he will drop back and play great, do great in the zone. So I think that's uh, one guy to look at. And the other for me is another rising senior, Tyrell Ajon, who, you know, he's in all the highlight reels because he seems to come up with big picks and big games. He had a pick. Um, against Florida in 2019, the game they lost at home. Uh, they He had a big – I'm trying to think. He, he's had a couple big picks. All of his picks have been big. And he's a guy who I think with more playing time now at that cornerback position um, could be a breakout guy. He's, again, extremely fast. He's a versatile guy who could play both uh, defensive back positions. So what, he make, he just makes big plays every year. Looking at looking at the stats right now, right, the other pick was against Mississippi State in 2018, the game that finally uh, had them become ranked when they shut down Mississippi State's offense. So every year he comes up with a big pick, and I think this year with more playing time, you can see a lot more of that. Right, yeah, I mean, that's the one thing you can't teach a DB is just that playmaking ability. I mean, you could teach all the form, all the positioning, but if they just aren't a playmaker, then you can't really change it. So that's, that's huge for Kentucky, but – Looking at the schedule, man, I went ahead and was kind of breaking it down. And for me, this is one of the more manageable schedules, in my opinion, in yeah. the in, in the SEC. There's a real shot here for Kentucky to make a run. There is that tough three-game stretch, though, and I know you know what I'm talking about here. Florida, LSU, Georgia, all back-to-back in three-state weeks. If Kentucky can steal a game or two in this stretch, there, there's a 10-11 win season sitting there for the Wildcats, in my opinion. But for you – what is the ceiling and or floor for this 2021 team right now? That's a great question. I mean, 
look, their non-conference compared. There's a there's some tough non-conference slates in this SEC this year. I was looking actually the other day at it. I mean, I believe Georgia's playing Clemson. Arkansas has a terribly hard uh, path in the non-conference, so it's not easy for a lot of teams. But you look at Kentucky's non-conference, first of all, I don't think ULM, I think they were 0-10 last year. Uh, that's yeah. going to be a win. New Mexico State's not going to be a problem. Um, the Really, the only game you look at is Louisville, the rivalry game, but Kentucky has outscored them 101-23 to the last two matchups. Uh, so you can't be too worried about that. Uh, in the SEC, obviously they've had great success in South Carolina. Who knows what they're going to be. Uh, Missouri, I think, is a game week two that I think everybody on the Kentucky team has it just circled. I mean, this is a team they've beat, you know, they've had beat five years in a row, even when Missouri, I think in 2019, when they came in, were, uh, with Kelly Bryant, were nine-point favorites, and Kentucky just completely shut them out um, defensively. So that's going to be a game I just don't see them losing. I think they're just going to be too motivated there. Um, and then, obviously, I think they're probably ahead of where they're definitely, I think, have jumped Tennessee in that SEC East. And who knows what Tennessee is going to deal with the transition year. They're obviously ahead of Vanderbilt. Um, so the, really the four games you look at, like you said, it's even I'd put it at a four-game stretch of unknown with Florida, LSU, Georgia, and Mississippi State. Obviously, I think they're probably a better team than Mississippi State, but they haven't won in Starkville in a long time. I Honestly, off the top of my head, I couldn't even tell you the last time they won Starkville. Uh, usually those two teams with their, uh, you know, they play every year and usually the home team wins. That's how it's been at least since uh, 2015. So that that game, obviously they're going to have to prove they can go win down there, though I do think they're the better team. Uh, Florida is the most frustrating thing ever, obviously. Uh, 30, you know, they had the 31-year streak. They break it. They should have really. They should have won three in a row from seventeen uh, to nineteen. Uh, they blew two opportunities at home, so this one will be another one at home. I, it's definitely interesting to me that this. I think this is the first time. I, again, I can't tell you the year off the head that this is not going to be the first SEC game, or other than last year. That is, I guess last year they played at the end of last year, but weird scheduling. But this is the first normal year where Florida is not their first SEC game in quite some time. So it'll be interesting to see if that helps them at all. I think Florida's probably due to take a step back just because of how just how much they lost and how inexperienced they're going to be. So that could go either way. Um, LSU, like you said, I, I honestly have to look in more. and I have no idea what to expect from LSU uh, this year. I don't think anybody does. Uh, they're just a, it's a, it's a weird situation then. Obviously, it, it's uh, Georgia has been is their new one. They just can't get off their backs, and the, you know they play really well defensively. At least the last two years. I mean, I think the combined score. I know last year was fourteen to three, and the year before that was twenty-one nothing. So they do they do enough to stop them on offense. And obviously, there's not going to be the Kentucky's number one killer, uh, DeAndre Swift, is now two years gone. So last year they were able to do a really good job against the run. So. It, that game in Athens, though, that's going to be tough. So I think really in reality, I really believe the ceiling could be a 10-win season. I, I just don't see this being the year they beat Georgia. I really think Georgia has a chance to win the whole SEC this year. And then, you know, a combination of Florida, LSU, and Mississippi State probably sees them trip up just knowing how history goes. But I'd say that's your ceiling. And then the floor, it's hard to imagine them losing – uh, some of those games I mentioned the SEC, but you just never know. Obviously, Tennessee outside of you know the two games uh, in these last four years has been just horrible for them. So it's hard to ever guarantee them a win over Tennessee, just given the history how that goes. 
And then, honestly, I do I see them taking care of business with Missouri, South Carolina, um, and Louisville and Vandy. So really, I mean, I guess you, I would say the I, I really think at worst you're looking at eight because you just never know Tennessee and Louisville rivalry games that could at the end of the day just be weird. And <laughs> that's how it goes. Obviously, Kentucky beat. Louisville in 2016 when they were 28 point dogs. So anything had happened there, but I really, I think between eight and 10 is really the only way to look at it. Just like you said, it's such a manageable schedule. They would really have to either go through an injury bug or something to mess it up. I agree. And I mean, I'm looking at it. I mean, Florida, I feel like that's a toss up game this year. Like you said, all that inexperience LSU, like you said, that's, it's like a, it could either be a draw four card or (laughs) like not even in the day. How to evaluate LSU. (laughs) I, I I just don't know. They're just the, they, I don't know. They could win. They could win the, (laughs) not win the SEC must be up there or they could win three games. They're weird. Exactly. So that's a toss up. But yeah, I agree with you. Georgia this year, especially with now landing two five stars last week, that team's just, even without George Pickens, that team is going to be disgusting. But it's going to be a good year for Kentucky. I'm excited. But last question here, man. I've been to a lot of SEC stadiums. Kentucky's like one of the last ones I have to come knock off. And I, I still remember, it, it's weird, that environment 2018 against Georgia. Was was one of the most ridiculous environments I've seen. So it shows that these fans cared that Lexington Kroger Field could be an intimidating environment. What makes th- that place such a unique environment on game days? Well, I'll tell you what. I think Kentucky's fan base is so passionate. Whenever, obviously, basketball is the one sport where they could be zero and twenty and they'll still show up in full force. But when there's momentum, and they sense really more than anything. They sense good effort, and they sense this team really wants it. You know, they show up. I remember when I was a freshman, you know, at UK uh, 2017. Uh, my first real, I went to you know the non-conference games, but the real experience I had was that Florida Kentucky game in 2017, and the place was sold out. Obviously, Florida came into that game ranked 20th, but that was the year they won four games. It was a winnable game. They should have won that game, won't go down that road, but it was just electric. And when the team is good, especially in 2018, you mentioned the Georgia game, uh, but I'd even look at the Mississippi State game. I mean, that place was – because, I mean, Georgia took the crowd out for the second quarter. But Mississippi State from, you know, kickoff to the last second, the place was a madhouse. And that was, you know, the Benny Snell game. It's just such a passionate fan base when things are going right, especially with this football program. I mean, the, the football fans are diehards. You could even say they're bigger fans than the basketball fans, but they are also smart fans. They know uh, when this team deserves to have them there and when they don't. Uh, I always, I'm always like that. I, I think of the best message a fan base can send is if you're really loving the job your team is doing, show up, and if you're not. Don't show up and show them that. I think that's the number one thing a fan base can do. <clears throat> and they, they show up. They really do when this team is good. And I think this year with the schedule so manageable, I mean, this home slate is one people have been talking about for years, having Florida and LSU coming into the house. Tennessee's coming in. I'm supposed to have Louisville this year too, but they, because uh, of COVID last year, gave the home field Louisville and set everything back a year, which is fine. But still, it's such a good home slate. Um, obviously Vanderbilt's like a home game every year too. So um, it, I, I really think that if this team performs to what it's capable of and they, you know, really they have a great chance to start 4-0, 
that Florida game, it's going to be a madhouse, especially this year uh, with everything we lost due to COVID last year. Right, yeah, I think a lot of stadiums are going to be like that where all the fans are like, yeah, we're going to make up for the entire year of no football. Um, I know I have – I know I have a baseball right now. Even I mean, the baseball games are unbelievable. Both college and MLB. Some of the fans showing up. Absolutely, Um, Kentucky fans travel too. So I remember (laughs) I went to Kansas City for the uh, Sweet Sixteen and Elite Eight games for Auburn and Kentucky and USC and Houston. And for the Auburn USC game was before the Kentucky Houston game. Yeah, and it was probably eighty five percent Kentucky fans during the Auburn USC game. And I was like, this is. This is insane. And yeah. it was just a sea of blue everywhere. And it was Kentucky blue, that dark blue <laughs> over the USC blue. And I remember the Elite Eight game, it was probably 95% Kentucky fans yeah. compared to Auburn fans. Oh, they travel. I was I covered uh, the weekend before in Jacksonville the first two rounds that weekend. And I think, I think Kentucky played the night game. There were three games, obviously, the first day. Or was it three? It was either two or three games. can't remember off the top of my head. But I know the first game of the day was LSU – and, yeah, it was three games. The first game was LSU and BYU – or not BYU, and Yale. And that game started at, like, 11 a.m., and Kentucky was on the floor at, like, 7. And it was still a sea of blue. <laughs> it was 11 a.m. So they show up. They, they, they're they as passionate as it comes when they're – especially basketball, they'll always be there. But when the football team is going even, you know, you see the crowds when their softball and baseball teams are going, uh, they, they know how to show up. And I think this year um, they'll have every reason to. I agree. I think they're going to be right there in the SEC East race. But, man, I appreciate you coming on the show. Sure. We're recording this real late, and, you know, I know everyone's busy right now. So where can our listeners find you, man? Social media, a sea of blue, all that. Where can they find you, man? Yeah, Twitter's my go-to. It's A Gershon, G-E-R-S-H-O-N 99 is my main account. I have a work account, but that's just for Princeton, Indiana. I don't think many people care about that, so I'm going to leave it out. But um, that is my full-time gig, but I've been with the Sea of Blue doing uh, content and some editing for them and was podcasting for a while. We kind of are on a little hiatus right now, but um, we've been there since 2018, so that's a seaofblue.com, like you said, the SB Nation affiliate, and also uh, bigblueinsider.com. Uh, I've been doing that. I've been with them since 2019, that's where I actually uh, go credentialed as when I – well, this year we'll see what the deal is, but the last couple of years, um, that is we have our radio show in Lexington every day from 6 to 8, every weekday that is. Uh, now that the summer's here and my full-time gig is kind of slow, I've been able to do that almost every night, so I'm on the radio there. Um, and then we have our website, like I said, at bigblueinsider.com. Yeah, guys, go check all that out. I promise you Kentucky's going to be one of those teams y'all are going to want to follow. Plus, super easy team to root for as just an average fan. I, I, I always am just like an honorary. Football, you got to love it. They're an underdog. I, 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 Everyone hates Indiana here, but I'm like, Indiana football, I love it. They're such underdogs in that awful Big Ten. I hate the Big Ten. But I, I root for them just to knock off Ohio State and all those other Michigan and all them. And then uh, the basketball team, we hate them. So that's pretty much how it goes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. As an Auburn guy, not a huge fan of Kentucky basketball. But <laughs> football, I'll root, I'll root for some Kentucky football. But uh, the basketball, after the way Auburn and Kentucky have had such a close rivalry yeah. in these past yeah. few years, I'm like, I can't stand Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. want anything to do with them. Um, but, 
man, I appreciate it. But, guys, y'all know where to find Aaron, all his stuff, all Kentucky covers. Go check that out. Y'all know where to find us, YouTube, any and all podcast streaming platforms. Subscribe now. Give this video a thumbs up. Go follow Aaron. Go follow us. But for Aaron, myself, and the Blue Bloods, guys, we are out. 